Hello everybody, um, you are watching a cleft palette video with myself, Jen from Don't Get Lippy and Don't Get Lippy Global, and with Mr Tom O'Neill, a cleft surgeon based in South Wales. Hello Tom. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, so as I've just mentioned, we're going to do, we're going to dedicate today's video on the cleft palette. Um, for your proper introduction and full introduction, obviously we did that in our last cleft lip video. Um, so without further ado, Let's get on. Um, so if you can just explain what a what the function of a regular palette is. OK, um, the pro probably the best way of, of thinking about how the palette works is is uh, what go what doesn't work very well in someone with a cleft palette that people yeah. with an intact palette don't, don't experience. OK, yeah. so the palette is involved in, in numerous things and we don't even think about it half the time. So you use the palette in speech quite a lot. And you use it in different aspects of your speech. So without getting into too much nitty gritty detail, um, when you are uh, speaking or making your voice, you kind of vibrate air with your vocal cords down here. You send it up into your oral and nasal cavity. And then what you do with the structures up there, such as your teeth, uh, your lips, your tongue and your palate will augment and change that vibrating um, airwaves uh, and create different sounds and different speech. So. Your palate is involved in articulation. So when where you place your tongue uh, up to the roof of your mouth for saying certain sounds such as la. Mm -hmm. um, and also your palate is involved further back. The soft palate is involved for sealing off the space between your nose and your mouth at the back wall of your throat. And that stops air from coming down your nose when you talk. And that affects something called resonance. So it allows you to generate pressure to push some sounds out of your mouth like that p sound um, and b sound and allows you to generate that pressure. So the palate is also involved in swallowing. So when you go to swallow something, it, the soft palate lifts up out of the way and allows all the food and directs it to go downwards instead of up into the back of your nose. Mm -hmm. um, so they're the kind of things that the palate is used for. And they're the things that people who don't have an intact palate uh, struggle with doing. Um, so you often see pe people with uh, issues with their speech you can see people with issues with nasal regurgitation of food. Um, so they, I would say, would be the two main uh, functions of the palate that people um, who are cleft affected would find difficulty with sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So how common is a cleft palate um, generally or in relation to somebody that has a cleft lip and then cleft palate as well? Because as I understand it, a cleft palate is actually the most common type of cleft that occurs. Am I right? I'm not sure. Yeah, so it, it's there, there's you can break and classify uh, different clefts down in different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, you can have a uh, cleft lip and or palate. So a cleft involving the lip and to varying degrees, uh, the gum or the palate as you go backwards. Um, or you can have isolated cleft palate only where the lip and the alveolus or the gum is never involved and the palate is involved to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. So starting at the back and working forward. Um, and people with diagnosis like Roban sequence, for example, or PRS, um, they would typically have an isolated cleft palate only, no involvement of the, the gum or the lips, yeah. um, but never say never in medicine. <laughs> um, and then finally, you've got um, people who've got um, submucous cleft palate, which is a type of form of cleft palate uh, where you look inside and everything looks pretty much normal or you don't see the big gap. So uh, people who have a cleft involving their palate would fall into the category of 
uh, unilateral and bilateral complete cleft lip and palate, mm -hmm. isolated cleft palate patients, and submucous cleft palate patients. So the vast, vast majority of people presenting to the cleft service would have involvement of the palate uh, mm -hmm. to some degree. Only a small percentage of people would have uh, isolated cleft uh, lip or lip and alveolus only, so about 20 to 25 percent. Right. And so the rest, more, more than 75 percent, I would say, would have involvement of the palate to some degree. And as I understand it, and again, I might be wrong and, and I may not be asking the right person, but I think they would only be looking or assuming cleft palate if they identify a cleft lip um, during a sonogram. Um, and routinely, they wouldn't normally check to see if there was a cleft palate in uh, pregnancy, during pregnancy. So a lot of isolated cleft palates would only be found out and established post-birth. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, for two reasons. Um, number one, even if you see a cleft lip or you suspect a cleft lip on a sonogram at 20 weeks or so, um, you may not be able to see the palate. So often it's very position dependent. And if you can catch the baby having a yawn, sometimes you can see it. So a lot of it will depend on the, uh, the skill, seniority and um, abilities of the sonographer. Yeah. Uh, also, it will depend on the position, location of the baby and whether they yawn during uh, the sonogram or not. Um, but we would say that the accuracy of picking up a cleft lip uh, antenatally is very, very high. So the number of um, women delivering babies now with a cleft lip who've been through, you know, a typical antenatal screening process and to be surprised by a baby with a, a cleft lip is very, very low now compared to what it was, say, 10 years ago. But you're totally right. Um, a cleft involving the palate is very difficult. Isolated uh, cleft involving the palate is very difficult to pick up antenatally. So I think most people who establish a, a cleft palate post birth, it all understandably is a massive surprise. So um, obviously this is partly why I want to do this video. So those that are post birth and all of a sudden there's now a cleft palate involvement. It's, you know, we're kind of aiming it at two different kind of sectors of people, I believe. And um, so obviously, as far as I'm aware, again, you can get a cleft palate that can be the tiniest hole and you can get a cleft palate that is, you know, essentially no palate at all. And um, is it often only established when I guess the idea, you know, the indicator is that food starts to, or milk starts coming down the nose. Would that be the, the most accurate way of establishing it? Um, yeah, so, so really quickly after delivery, babies are always either put to the breast or, or fed. Yeah. Um, and usually you'll find that um, babies will struggle to feed if they've got a cleft affecting their palate, yeah. irrespective of how much of the palate is involved. Okay. Now, occasionally you can find babies with a very minor cleft of the soft palate who can breastfeed or breastfeed with difficulty, but they do manage to breastfeed. And so people wouldn't be overly suspicious then mm -hmm. uh, immediately after birth. But an inspection of the palate is part of the, um, the postnatal baby check. Okay. So nobody should leave hospital without someone checking the palate. Okay. Now, you will always find that, that anything that is done by a human is open to error, okay? Um, and often you will find that the PEDS SHO who comes around to do the baby checks um, will, will be very thorough and will see everything and absolutely fine. But occasionally, um, we do get cases whereby people are referred a little bit late because the cleft was missed. And usually that's because the cleft is very posterior, um, you know, kind of affecting the soft palate only right at the back of the back of the palate. Um, 
but most of the time uh, babies will present with a feeding problem yeah. um, and will present with uh, um, a, a palate that's been detected on the postnatal check. Yeah. Um, and again, I might be asking the wrong person, but is when they check for a gag reflex, is that in any connection to a cleft palate or is that something completely different? Something different, yeah. That's a neurological uh, there you go. <laughs> reflex. But um, when, when, you, when you're testing the gag reflex, you should be able to see and detect the palate as well. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so um, in relation to a big gap or a small gap or however you, a hole, however you sort of explain it, are there any, with a smaller hole, is that just declared as an easier sort of, sort of fix or is it you can still experience severe um, sort of experiences off the back of a smaller hole or a larger hole? So there's, there's two ways you can approach that really. Um, there's what does the degree of palatal involvement or depending on how, what does the size of the hole mean in terms of the outcome for that child, right? Yeah. And there's what does the size of the hole mean in terms of the uh, operation I have to undertake? Okay, yeah. so let's deal with the first bit first. So if you think about uh, the degree of involvement, there's something called a VOE classification, V-E-A-U. And basically if you can, uh, divide uh, palate involved clefts into four different categories, you will find that clefts involving the soft palate only mm -hmm. are more likely to have better speech outcomes than bilateral palate involvement. Okay. okay? So you can see that some um, subtypes of palatal cleft are at higher risk of developing uh, long-term speech problems compared with others. So yes, to a degree, um, because the palate is usually involved from the back to varying degrees coming forward rather than the forward to back, okay. um, you can say that uh, smaller holes or smaller gaps at the back of the palate are easier to deal with and have a better outcome than those that are involving right the way to the front. Okay. Also, when you look at the width of the cleft and you don't just look at the width of the gap by itself, you have to take that measurement relative to what the palatal shelves are. And the palatal shelves are the bits that you have on either side of the gap. Yeah. Um, so when you measure those two shelves, what you want is to make sure that when you add that together, that that is greater than the width of the gap, because those two bits of tissue have to come to the middle to close the gap. And if they're too narrow, when you add them together and you bring them to the middle, you're going to end up with two gaps running up the sides instead. So sometimes really, really, really wide palettes, mm -hmm. you may not be able to close in a single stage and you may have to think about a multi-stage procedure. It's not very often that that happens. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of palettes, even though um, people may look and parents may look in and go, oh my God, that's a massive gap. Yeah. Um, when we look in at the time of surgery, we'll take some measurements and make a decision as to whether or not we can achieve closure in a single stage or not. And um, the vast, vast majority of the time, with the exception of maybe one or two cases every couple of years, we're able to achieve closure in a single stage, so long as we undertake something called lateral relieving incisions. And what that means is that we have to make some cuts at the side to allow the tissue to come to the midline, to release it from around the sides of the head or the insides of the gum at the back. Um, so people who have a child who's had palate surgery or is going to have palate surgery where the soft palate is involved only mm -hmm. would very rarely have to uh, encounter anything like this. Okay. People who have more involvement in the hard palate 
or Raban sequence or really wide clefts, they are more than likely going to need the relieving incisions. Occasionally, the surgeon can give you a fair idea before surgery, okay. but often it's a decision that's made at the time of closure of the palate. So if it's too tight when the closure is being done, mm -hmm. then you go on and do lateral relieving incisions. And the reason I am nodding so much is because that's exactly what Will had done. So, um, you know, his surgeon didn't say anything pre-surgery. And then when she came and did her sort of rounds after surgery, she said I had to do something that she declared as like a, a release technique, which is obviously just the layman's term to understand. So, yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from in that, that respect. But I, if I'm honest, I didn't realise how much goes into like measurements and this way and that way, it just... You know, and obviously this is why we're doing the video. So this is great. Exactly. And when you do those releasing incisions or those lateral relieving incisions, um, usually what you do is when you bring the tissue from the sides to the midline, you mm. end up with two gaps around the inside of the gum at the back okay. where your molar teeth would live yeah. um, on either side. Now, what you do with that space then uh, will vary from surgeon to surgeon. Okay. Uh, some people will stitch a, 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 a material in called surgery cell. And surgery cell is um, a dressing that is naturally absorbed. Um, it is uh, something called hemostatic, which means that it naturally stops bleeding or clots blood, so it doesn't um, bleed or ooze. Um, so that's one one technique. And mm -hmm. um, there's a slightly uh, better technique, in my opinion, which I do, which is called uh, buccal fat pads. Um, and I got taught that by uh, the cleft service in Glasgow where we take a little bit of the buccal fat from the inside of the cheek and we lay that in instead. And there's a few different advantages to that. So fat is hemostatic by itself, so it will stop um, bleeding or oozing. It covers the periosteum of the bone of the hard palate, so it's not as painful for babies. So anecdotally, without any surgical or without any obvious scientific evidence, I found that babies feed a bit better postoperatively with that technique rather than the other one, which I used to do. Um, and also it heals much faster. So you don't have to heal a cavity from the base up. It just has to heal over the top. Yeah. So a babies heal a bit faster and get back to themselves a bit quicker. So there's, there's no kind of um, sort of reason why you would do one or the other only from your kind of personal experience of doing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Exactly. So it's all down to what you've been taught, what yeah. the experiences of the units where you trained in were, and when you critically look at one technique over another, what you think makes most sense in your own head. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't have any studies putting, uh, you know, surgery cell versus buccal fat pads to say that babies heal faster, are, are more settled faster after surgery. It's yeah. just anecdotal. Just, just what you've um, come to see from what you've done. Um, and I think it's important, again, to kind of reiterate off the back of the last video that clefts are such a grey area what works for somebody may not work for somebody else what technique works for a different surgeon will not work as well for another so again it's you know down to your experience that I guess that you guys kind of know what to do best for that you know individual patient and um, so I've got all my questions to one side which is why I'm hesitating slightly um so you've already mentioned then so a cleft palate kind of works its way from the back, so from the soft palate forwards. Um, is there any rhyme or reason as to, you know, could you just get one in the cleft palate, in the hard palate? Um, I suppose in theory, anything is possible. Good, yeah. um, But uh, for 99.9% for .9 of patients who are cleft affected, 
Yeah. Uh, we know from embryology um, that within the first kind of seven to nine weeks uh, of uh, embryo formation that the palate is formed uh, and it usually closes with an anterior to posterior zipping. So the two palatal shelves will raise up. The left one comes up before the right one, happens in boys before it happens in girls uh, in utero. And then it zips from the front back. And uh, either it doesn't zip at all and you get a complete cleft, usually involving the uh, alveolus, yeah. or uh, it zips absolutely fine, but stops before it gets completely there. And then you end up with a cleft involving the soft palate or varying degrees of the hard palate. Yeah. So... Um, why uh, or can you get clefts that are just involving the hard palate? I presume you can, but I've never seen one. Right. OK, makes sense. So um, what prep is done for um, a, a patient that has a cleft palate? So I guess, again, that will be different for those that have uh, a full both hard palate and soft palate. The prep will be different to those that just have a soft palate, presumably pre-surgery. Um, not massively different in the UK. In, in America, you probably will have some difference in terms of uh, nasoalveolar moulding or pre-surgical uh, orthopaedics uh, to try and line up the gum or the alveolar arch a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, presuming that we're not talking uh, about how things are done in America, then, yeah, the, the, there is no huge prep really for surgery uh, for the palate in the UK. Um, what we do is we just try and make sure that babies are gaining weight steadily, that that period of time that they've been waiting for their palate surgery, which is up to between six and nine months of age, uh, is what our target is in South Wales. So in that period of time that no other medical conditions have declared themselves, that, you know, their uh, reflux is under control, they're gaining weight well, they're hugging their centiles, their development is normal. You know, anything that could be, uh, you know, causing us a red flag, you know, so that babies aren't getting blue in the lips when they're feeding or, you know, that their development isn't abnormal so that we're worried about there being another diagnosis that hasn't been made yet. Yeah. And that's all just to keep babies safe when they're going to sleep and, and making sure that they don't need any further investigations before that they before they do go to sleep. Yeah. Um, some centres will take swabs to check for particular bacteria. Mm. Um, we haven't found that to be particularly useful, so um, we don't do that anymore. Uh, a lot of centres used to take blood tests beforehand in pre-assessment clinics, um, but we look backwards on our cohort of babies and on everyone that we'd taken a blood test, surgery was never really cancelled or postponed, um, and no specific treatment was instigated on the basis of the blood test, so we just stopped doing them. Unless... We have a, a concern over either a syndrome or the patient or baby is obviously anemic for another reason, then obviously we will do blood tests, but we tend not to because it's a bit upsetting for the baby, it's upsetting for the parents and it hasn't yielded anything massively for us. No. Absolutely. So um, now in COVID times, uh, kids are undergoing pre-assessment in a clinic beforehand, having their COVID swab and going into isolation for 72 hours is in our unit now, it'll vary around the country. Um, depending on what part of the country you're in. Mm -hmm. but, but that really is, is the amount of prep that's done at home. Um, we, don't, we don't give any specific advice of what parents need to do or don't do. Right. Uh, in terms of weaning, just, just crack on and wean as normal. If you would wean your baby at six months and their palate repair is scheduled for seven months of age, just yeah. wean away. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's a real um, common thing that I see coming up in groups and that people talk about because the idea of feeding a child that doesn't have any, um, you know, sort of palate structure is, I mean, it's a long process. It's arduous. It's messy. Me so, so messy. But my yeah. skill was scoop it out the nose and shove it straight back in. And <laughs> what I, I often say to people is that the babies don't know any difference. So no. it's not like us that we, you know, if, I mean, I'm not the best example since I was born with a cleft palate, but, you know, as somebody that now has a palate, if I lost my palate, then yes, of course, that would be unusual. You know, the sort of system would be strange, but these babies don't know any different. So, you know, just kind of crack on is my best advice. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, some, some people will go for baby led weaning and some people yeah. will go for the purees kind of thing. So, um, for the baby led weaners, uh, I suppose it, it might be slightly trickier to manage postoperatively if your baby is used to sitting in a high chair and picking up a bit of broccoli or a rusk, which is dry and, um, you know, kind of trying to chew on it. If that's how they're weaning uh, onto solid food, then that might be a bit trickier to continue in the immediate postoperative period. Whereas people who are weaning onto, you know, baby rice and purees and things like that, that kind of weaning is a bit easier to manage postoperatively because you know you can continue that with a spoon in recovery if if babies are really hungry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so that would be the only thing I would kind of say. But you know everyone should wean the way they want to wean. And if um if babies are are you know if people want to wean their babies on baby led weaning beforehand, they should. They just may need to change that for a few weeks after surgery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking to somebody that had to wean their son at 17 weeks, which was terrifying but yeah. um the also the the benefit of weaning um pre-cleft palate surgery is that you have more of a variety of a variety of food to then encourage your child to eat post-op and um, if your child is still reliant on milk like they might be for lip and hard palate surgery let's say um you don't have much choice like you know you you've got milk or you know that's yeah. kind of your, your yeah. end whereas you know if they're literally eating anything and everything I just say take as much of their favorite thing as you can um, yeah. and another thing that people say as well is when you um spoon feed it, you know if you are spoon feeding your child post cleft palate surgery you can actually turn the spoon upside down so that they then scrape with their tongue and then obviously they can work their way around their palate rather than kind of scraping upwards so that was another Top tip. Top tip. <laughs> um, so, um, how and when would you do a cleft palate repair for the hard palate? We, we if if you've got a lip involvement, mm -hmm. we would do the hard palate at the time of the lip repair, and that's called the bulmarine flap. Um, so that that's between three and six months of age. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have lip or uh, a lip involvement. Mm -hmm. then we would probably do the complete palate at between six and nine months of age. Okay. Um, if you're doing um, a palate repair and you've got no lip involvement or you're not working on the lip that day, mm -hmm. you can do a bilateral vomerine flap. So if the palate is involved on both sides to a certain degree, you can use bilateral vomerine flap so long as you're not doing surgery to the lip. So usually palates can be closed in their entirety in a single stage. Um, but you might just make life a bit easier for yourself if you've closed the hard palate yeah. uh, at the time of the lip repair. Okay. How long is, um, would you say, on average, how long is uh, surgery for cleft palate surgery? 
Um, so I, I don't know what other surgeons um, do, but for me, palate surgery for an isolated palate is probably about an hour and 45 minutes, an hour to about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes, mm-hmm. um, which for me is shorter than what the time I take to do a cleft lip and anterior palate repair. So some surgeons will be different. They will be uh, slower at doing the palate and they will be, or they'll be faster at doing the, slower at doing the palate and faster at doing the lip. Um, I think it depends on what kind of techniques you use, whether you're more artistic and you cut as you go, or whether you're more, I'm relying on the geometry of this and I'm going to measure everything 15 times before I do any cutting at all, which is me. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm about an hour and 45 minutes for a palate repair. Now, there's a big caveat to that, Jen, because every, every time you ask a surgeon how long an operation takes, they will only tell you what the surgical time is. Yes. So surgeons think that they're, the operation is only the bit that they do, right? Yeah. They forget about the bit of going asleep in the anesthetic room. They forget about the transfer of the patient onto the operating table. Yeah. They forget about the positioning of the patient, the, the WHO checklist, which takes about five minutes to make sure we've got the right patient in the right theater with the right surgeon, the right kit, having the right operation um, have antibiotics been given or not do we need to look after this patient in any particular special way because they've got diabetes or etc etc are the patient warm enough have we got warming stuff on are the lights in the right place you know all of this kind of thing takes time and so you know you ask me how long does a palate repair take i'll tell you it takes me an hour and 45 minutes to repair a palate that's you though that's your bit <laughs> that's my bit but if you tell me if you ask me as a parent Right. From the time I say goodbye to my child in the anesthetic room, how long before I say hello again yeah. is probably in the order of about three hours. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what I again, our experience with Will was was three hours. So, yeah, I can definitely understand. And I think that's so important to say to or make people aware is that, yes, it may take the surgeon this amount of time, but you've also got recovery. You've got to wait and make sure that the baby's OK post-surgery you've got to go and pick them up from recovery. Like it's a long process. And actually Will's surgery, his first one, his lip and his hard palate was just as long as his soft palate. So, you know, that might indicate to you what the surgeon's um, sort of particular skills are like. But, um, you know, I think it's a long time for, for the parents to wait whilst you guys are so busy and, you know, everyone's got their place and calling things and pulling things and whatever. And um, yeah, it's, it's a long old time for the parents as well. It's, it is massively long for parents and it's really difficult, particularly during COVID times, because, you know, before COVID time, you could have brought a friend with you or your partner or your husband, your, your, your wife, you know, whoever uh, to, to come with you and just someone to spend that time with you, to distract you, to do something with where you sit on the ward, watch a movie or, yep. or something else. Just, yeah. But now you can't, you're on your own. There's only one parent allowed down to the anesthetic room. There's only one parent allowed on the ward with us. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult time for them. Mm. And because I'm a dad as well, and I've had a child who's had surgery, I know exactly what it's like to be on that waiting end. Mm. So I, I make it my business as soon as the child is in recovery to go to the ward to let the parents know that they can breathe again, that their child is fine and that you'll be seeing them really shortly. And I always tell people that it's time now to go and have have a wee, make sure you have something to eat or drink um, and bring a bottle down or or get something ready because, you know, they're going to be busy for the next 36 hours. Um, and, you know, it's important that parents are looked after as well. Yeah. And it's tricky. It's really tricky when you see parents, um, you know, when they're in for two nights, 
and babies aren't sleeping and babies aren't feeding very well and we're you know you know trying to navigate that first 48 hours is really difficult it's hugely onerous on 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 the one parent who's left to do it um so yeah in terms of what you asked about preparation beforehand there's nothing you can do for the for the child really as a parent before palate surgery but you just need to, to prepare yourself make sure you've got plenty of snacks uh, drinks chargers for all devices to maintain contact with the outside world yeah um you know that that's really critically important and dark clothing is yeah. Is another top tip, you know, because you just obviously your natural instincts is to, to hold your baby, but obviously they've been pulled and they've got blood and they've got stuff everywhere. So dark clothing, again, is another top tip from a, a parent who's been through it. <laughs> and so immediately after surgery, you said on your round, you go and then speak to the parents. Obviously, you let them know how it's gone and, and possibly the release technique that you've done um, or not done. Yeah, I don't. I don't even wait for a round at the end of the day. I, okay. I go in between cases. I'll, as soon as that individual child has gone into recovery, I'll go and talk to each individual parent, and then go back to the theatre to get ready for the next case. Um, at the end of the day, we'll do the round and we'll come around and see how everyone has been. Um, we'll, you know, every child is going to be grumpy when they wake up in the recovery room. And what I always say to people is that, look, there's there's a number of reasons why they'll be upset. Every parent automatically presumes that their child is in pain because they've had surgery. Yeah. I'll flood the area completely with local anaesthetic um, that lasts for up to six hours. So um, that's on board. The anaesthetic doctors give loads of pain relief before babies wake up, like morphine as well as paracetamol. Um, they'll have uh, you know, a numb mouth. They'll be hungry. It's not like waking up from a nap. It feels they feel like a bit groggy, like they're hungover. Yeah. Um, they've got uh, strangers all around them. The sights, the sounds, the smells are not normal to them. So it's going to be upsetting. But, you know, they're not in agony. They're not in, in huge amounts of pain. They're distressed and they're upset and they need a cuddle. They need their mum or their dad, but they don't need, uh, you know, any more morphine for that period of time. Um, on the round then we make sure that all the medication is written up that needs to be written up we ask if there's any questions we see how they've gotten on with feeding a lot of babies come back after the surgery they're upset they get a nice cuddle from mom maybe a bit of a feed maybe they're not that interested and then they go to sleep yeah. and then you've got like nurses and parents and uh, grandparents on facetime and us doing our round looking all all standing around a cot looking at a sleeping baby going yeah. is that it um so you know it, it's it's some some parents figure it's a bit of an anticlimax some are really relieved that it's all over and now they're looking forward to getting uh through the recovery bit and as i say that first 36 hours can be a bit fractious um particularly in children where there's been big uh wide releasing incisions or relieving incisions where they've had uh, extensive surgery it can just be a bit uncomfortable and the architecture of their palate changes so dramatically that everything feels totally weird so as you said before, they didn't think there was anything wrong with the fact that they could put their tongue into their nose. No. And all of a sudden they can't. And this space is much smaller and they just have to get, well, breathing's a bit difficult yeah. and a bit different. And feeding is totally different. And, um, you know, where there was a huge space and the railway was enormous. Now they've got these different compartments that they didn't have before. So it just takes a little while for babies to realize that they can do what, what um, they were doing beforehand. They can still breathe. They can still yeah. feed. They can still... Uh, cry they can still do all of those things and they figure it out really really quickly a lot quicker than if you or I were, were to have surgery on our palate as, as adults you know 
Absolutely. And I think like we totally underestimate their bounce back. I remember taking Will for, to be fair, even his first surgery and, you know, yes, the following night and the day sort of after surgery was, you know, as you say, fractious. And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, so we're done. Okay. So they, again, like they don't, they're not performing. They're not doing anything that they wouldn't choose to do. Um, you know, so they're eating, they're drinking. Yes, they're probably more swollen and, and things like that. But yeah, I don't. I think we totally underestimate their what they um, go through and then what they are, are like afterwards. Definitely, babies have a phenomenal ability. Their brains are really plastic, and what I mean by that isn't that they're you know made in Taiwan or China. They're, <laughs> they're they've just got the ability to change and mold their brains really, really, really. Um, massive to massive degrees so babies and neonates very young babies can turn off their pain pathways so if if a baby is experiencing pain for some reason they can just switch off that center in their brain so they just ignore it um and and that's a lot of the time i figure that that's what's going on to some degree in in the cleft babies after surgery because they're you know they're upset for a little period of time and they need a bit more pain relief and all the rest of it and then around lunchtime the day after surgery it's like i'm fine now yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know, I don't undervalue, you know, the level of stress that parents go through pre-surgery. I'm totally with people, but actually, um, and I always say it to people, the lead up is far worse than when you're there and and then it's done. And then like you say, you know, sort of third, six hours, it's like, oh, so you've just had major, major surgery, but you know, you don't care. It's just, yeah. it is phenomenal. It's amazing. And um, so what would be the appropriate aftercare? Um, oh no, I guess I'm kind of jumping actually slightly. And um, so obviously you guys give morphine as pain relief in hospital, um, yeah. but you, you don't prescribe morphine to take home, do you? No. So um, every unit will be different in this regard. Okay. And if you have a child who's had their tonsils out, for example, they will go home with morphine, but you're talking about much bigger children. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to babies, what we don't want to do is give morphine or any of those heavy duty painkillers um, because parents have enough to be worrying about without making sure that they've got the dose of this pretty industrial painkiller uh, correct. And you know, the last thing anyone wants is a baby to be overdosed in the community by accident. So um, once we keep an eye on babies, we look out for several things after surgery. We want to make sure that they're comfortable. So we look out for their pain relief. And we give them regular Calpol and regular Brufen, paracetamol and ibuprofen. And we make sure that that's done regularly at, at particular time intervals so that they're kept comfortable. Yeah. If there's any breakthrough discomfort or they're really upset and, and not settling, we presume that it's secondary to pain once it's more than six hours after surgery. Mm-hmm. And they will get a top up of oromorph, an oral morphine um, syrup. Yeah. In my experience, the most any baby needs that after surgery is about two doses, Mm -hmm. one late evening or overnight, depending on whether you were first or last on the list, maybe one the early hours of that morning after surgery. Most kids don't need it beyond that. Um, And I say most, but I mean about 99% don't. So so they get pain relief going home or you're asked to buy it yourself because the prescribing costs for the NHS for a bottle of Calpol is about five times what it costs you to go into the supermarket to pay for it. So um, that's why we try and encourage people just to stock up on Calpol and Brufen. Yeah. Um, you can get it in Lidl, you can get it in Aldi as well as the major supermarkets. So it just yeah. saves the NHS some money if, um, oh, cool. if you can do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, that should be all you need. Most units will give antibiotics after surgery. Some don't. Okay. Um, there's no evidence to prove that it's of benefit. There's no evidence pr- to prove that it's safe not to. 
So a lot of people will just keep doing what they've been taught to do. So if you're a center where you've been taught not to give antibiotics, chances are you're not going to start because there's no evidence to prove that it's a benefit. And if you're uh, trained by someone who gives antibiotics, chances are you won't stop because there's no evidence to prove that it's safe to. So So um, it's another, you know, it might depend where you've been trained, where you work, you know, and there's no right or wrong. Yeah, and, and all the surgeons in the UK decided to maybe we should do a trial to see whether or not we could, uh, you know, say whether or not antibiotics were indicated or not, yeah. and uh, or whether it, you know, increases the chance of fistula or wound breakdown if there's small subclinical infection there or not. And when uh, all the surgeons got together, nobody wanted to be randomised to the group opposite <laughs> to the opposite of what they were brought, uh, what they were raised to do as surgeons. So the the trial just never never got off the ground. Um, so I give antibiotics um, and I give them for five days after surgery. Okay. And um, so that's the, the, the only medicine that you will really go home with yeah. uh, for your baby. The rest you should have at home prepared already. Mm-hmm. Your cleft nurses will be teeing you up for that. And I'll be honest, I was very surprised that we were able to maintain and, and control pain with just Nurofen and um, ibuprofen. I was expecting the sort of more, as you say, industrial type of pain relief, but actually, again, they're ba- they bounce back, they're already eating and drinking because they need to, and they just get used to it. So I think it's just, it's important to like sort of make people aware that they, they're not going to need extensive pain relief, um, you know, nor these kind of crazy drugs either. So I think that's really important and so post surgery what are the next sort of few weeks would we normally see a surgeon post you know six weeks surgery or how does it work everywhere is going to be different so with us uh we run a nurse-led follow-up service because there's only one of me in south wales so um what we do is is the nurse specialist will run a clinic at six weeks uh, after surgery yeah um, so you'll go and you'll see them the nurse will have a look in make sure that the palate is healed, see if there's a fistula, if there is, document it, um, uh, or any other issues or problems um, or infections and things like that. Uh, that'll all be noted and, and documented and uh, an appropriate plan made. Um, you won't see me unless there's a problem. Okay. Uh, and if you, you will always have the ability to contact the team uh, from the time that you're discharged home and the team will be in regular contact with you at home over the phone or over FaceTime as well. Um, and if there was a major problem and you'd be brought in much sooner. But presuming everything goes according to plan, then uh, a few phone calls, a nurse-led follow-up clinic at six weeks, um, where you'll also see the assistant speech therapist um, and they'll be documenting the type of cleft that your child had, um, what type of repair was undertaken, are there any other high-risk uh, issues at all so if I find that the tissue is a bit thin or the muscles were a bit small or there was a muscle missing on one side or the other or the palate was really wide uh, or a bilateral palate then the assistant speech and language therapist is taking note of all of these things and each one of those things might be a little red flag to go this child needs a bit more regular follow-up this child needs a bit more special attention this child needs to be kept a closer eye on um, and then they'll go into a high risk follow-up pathway Okay. If it's just an isolated cleft with a soft palate, no lateral releasing incisions, really good muscles both sides, everything went according to plan, healed beautifully, no fistula, then they will go on a standard pathway. So depending on the type of cleft that you have, how surgery went, how the follow-up goes, determines an awful lot in terms of your follow-up uh, plan for speech therapy. Makes sense. Now, I, I think it's really, really important to say that fistulas post-surgery are really common, aren't they? 
Uh, yeah, so the, the average rate of a fistula in the UK is between 7 and 8%. Um, oh, okay. from that's not as common as I thought it was going to be, actually. So, yeah, yeah. thank you for saying that. So it, it depends on the type of clefts uh, that year in the, in the unit. So if you look back over 5 or 10 years, you'll find that most units have an average of between 7 and 8%. Okay. Some will be a little bit higher, some will be a little bit lower. If you tend to have more wide Raban sequence um, palettes, if you have more bilaterals than other parts of the country, you may end up with a slightly higher fistula rate. Yeah. Um, some years, you know, there's years where you might get four or five bilateral patients in one year in South Wales, other years you might get one. So your fistula rate will change year on year. Um, it's important to surgeons that we keep an eye on that. Um, and we you know, regularly self-audit and, and cleft is one of the most heavily audited surgical specialties that there is. So you can you can look back over your, you know, every two years and see what was your fistula rate. And then you pull the notes on everyone who got a fistula, you read through the operation sheet and you see, is there any reason why this child got a fistula? Mm -hmm. um, should I have done relieving incisions if the cleft measured 12 millimeters? Should I have done it if the cleft measured you know, you, you look at what the dimensions were, you look at what the quality of the tissue was like that you've documented, and you try to figure out if there's any particular reason from the surgery that you had control over that you should have done different or try to learn or augment for the next time. But yeah. so lot, most people will find that their fistula rate over a prolonged period of time remains fairly constant. Under, under 10, under 10%, 10 hopefully. Yeah. I guess, again, it, like it is important to note, and I think you know, maybe some people don't um, kind of aren't aware pre-surgery is that when people still see milk or food coming down the nose and let's say it's the hard palate involvement as well, it can actually be more the gum line that's causing the, the issue rather than a fissure in the palate. Would that be? Exactly. So if you have a lip and palate involvement and you have your lip and hard palate repaired and then you have your soft palate repaired, yeah. Um, depending on where you go uh, and who does your surgery, you may not have uh, the gap in the gum closed. Yeah. Um, and I certainly don't close that for a particular reason. Um, and so, so children who um, have their surgery with me will still have a connection between their mouth and their nose at the level of the gum. Yeah. Now, most of the time when you're swallowing, you're swallowing much further back. Mm -hmm. So unless you're trying to do a party trick, uh, and your six-year-old is trying to impress the that I can do and uh, take a drink into the mouth and shoot it out their nose, yeah. uh, which makes all their friends think they're pretty cool. But, um, you know, aside from that, the vast majority of people won't have a huge amount of nasal regurgitation of food or fluids just from that gap. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say to you is that at six weeks after surgery, sometimes you look in and you may see a small uh, hole, like two to three millimeters, just around where one of the stitches were. Yeah. And usually those little holes will close up themselves really quickly uh, and not cause any, any problems uh, further on down the line. What we're talking about when we're talking about fistula is something uh, that's there, you know, a couple of months after surgery, three, three months after surgery. It's a sizable hole. Uh, it looks fully healed. It's not getting any smaller. It's stopped in terms of uh, shrinkage. Uh, and it's certainly something that air can escape through. It's something that food can escape through. And that's then the fistula that you may need to intervene in. Oh, okay. There are people who, who've had palate surgery who are walking around with uh, pinprick size holes or match head size holes in their palate, which is causing them absolutely no problem. It's not affecting their speech. It's not affecting their ability to eat and drink in a restaurant with their mates. Uh, and therefore, we leave those people alone. We don't operate just because there's a hole. Yeah. We only operate if there's a hole that causes a problem. 
So yeah. not everyone who has a, a fistula is going to need surgery. Interesting. So I think there's two takeaways that I'll, you know, that I can absorb is that, you know, actually what a lot of people feel like is a fistula might actually be this, you know, um, hole after a stitch and actually it will self-heal. Um, yeah. And also that you can have a fistula that may not cause any issues and that you wouldn't then do anything with about anyway um exactly. so again the, the old gray area of clefts um you know it stands true post-surgery as well clearly um so talking about kind of fistulas and things so you've done the repair everything's lovely fantastic and then we kind of transition to speech and language would be the next sort of person in the line I guess and um, is it the speech and language therapist that identifies if there needs to be any further surgery or reconstruction done with the palate um no so when you when you've gone to the stage of you've got your palate repair done and you're um mostly in the hands of the speech and language therapist I think um, you've got uh, three kind of stages to, uh, you know, to there being a problem to proceeding to further surgery. Okay. So uh, detection is stage one, and that's the speech and language therapist. They detect that there is a problem. There is too much air coming down this child's nose. We don't know what the precise nature of the problem is, whether it's a fistula, whether the palate is too short, whether the muscles of dehistor come apart, um, or, or what the particular problem is. But the first stage is detection of a problem. The second stage then is investigation. And you can investigate by looking in, just having a look in. So if, um, you know, Will was a bilateral cleft. Um, so sometimes when you uh, look in the mouth, you can just see the palate looks really short. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't, you're never going to get a two-year-old, for example, to sit for a video fluoroscopy. And you'd never get a two-year-old to sit still while a camera goes down their nose for a nasal endoscopy. So sometimes you say, look, the speech therapists have said that at 18 months, there was too much air coming down his nose. He's now two. There's still too much air coming down his nose. We know he was a high risk um, cleft subtype. Uh, we know when we look in, he's got a really short palate. Thereby, we think we have enough evidence to recommend going ahead and doing surgery to re um, open up his palate, lengthen his palate, uh, re-dissect the muscles. Mm -hmm. If you've got a child who's a bit older than that, four or five, um, then the speech therapist says there's a problem, but we don't exactly know where the problem is or what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Then what we might do is go ahead and get the uh, uh, lateral video fluoroscopy examination or a nasal endoscopy or combine the two, depending mm -hmm. on what the particular problem of each individual child is. Mm -hmm. And that will give us more information about, look, the, the palate's lifting really well. It's lifting in the right place. It's a really good length. It's of nice thickness. I'm getting that really good knuckle or knee formation to see where the muscles are active and, and really lifting the palate well. Mm -hmm. But the, the pharynx is too far away. It's never going to reach it. And you can see what the dimensions are like and then come up with a plan of how you think you're best going to correct that issue for that particular child. Mm -hmm. And then we talk through that with the parents on the, at the time. So the speech and language therapists start listening from 18 months of age. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the centers will have a babble workshop. And you'll be invited to go to that. And once your baby is 18 months of age and starting to develop a couple of words uh, of language, it's a really good idea to go to that. Mm -hmm. um, it will give you and give the speech therapist an awful lot of information with regards to, I think this child's at high risk or not. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they're followed up again at age two, again at age three. Um, and at that stage, you're starting to think, look, there's a problem with this particular child. 
um, we need to intervene or we need to do something, uh, investigate, depending on what the nature of the problem is and, and what the child is like. There are some three and four year olds where you could get them to comply with the video foroscopy. And there are some five year olds who are just so wild, you'd never get them to sit still for long enough. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to expose a child to radiation knowing in advance that you're never going to get a good image from them. So the speech therapist will work with each individual child and prep them for it and practice and practice. And this is what we're going to do. And you've got to keep your head still, remember, and, and all of that prep work and game work and stuff. And sometimes children who don't even have a huge amount of language can still do a video foroscopy test um, with words or pictures and things like that. So, you know, you don't, your child doesn't have to be speaking in sentences to be able to give us some images that really help. Okay, that's really good to know. Because am I right in thinking, is that that's like an x-ray style so you guys can actually see everything working and moving um, yeah. to identify where the issue is? Yep, so uh, an x-ray beam is shown in from the side. Mm -hmm. So it's like a video form of x-ray. Mm -hmm. And you can see the soft palate lifting up and you can see the back wall of the throat. and You can see where the teeth are and their ears are and uh, all the rest of it. And um, kids are mesmerized because I bring them around to, to show, show them everything. And if they're wearing glasses and there's like little screws uh, all around where their eyeballs are and they're just like, they, they love it. But um, yeah, it, it, uh, it gives us an awful lot of information about the size, the length, the character, the lift mm -hmm. uh, of the palette, and then the dimensions of, of where the gap is. And um, so it is a very useful diagnostic tool to detect what the problem is and what you need to do to intervene then. Cool. And, and that is just one aspect, you know, children who've got diagnosis of 22Q microdeletion syndrome or DeGeorge syndrome, velocardiofacial, whatever name you want to give it. Um, they tend to have a really deep hyperpharynx. You can pick that up on the lateral video fluoroscopy as well. So the degree of that you would need to lengthen the palate so that it can achieve closure may be too big just to have a palate re-repair. You may need to combine it with another procedure or do another procedure completely differently, such as a pharyngoplasty. So that test and that investigation gives us all of that information. Mm -hmm. And um, what I and, and most of my colleagues would like to do is then take the parent around and show it to them or show the child if they're an older child so that they can understand why we're not doing option A, why we're not doing option B, um, and, and why specific to their child, I think that this operation is, is best. Yeah. Because while social media is a huge benefit and you know this is going out across social media platforms and it's, it's a huge way of communicating, what it doesn't do is it doesn't allow you a right of response. So, um, patient A has a cleft palate, uh, had a problem, ended up with a video fluoroscopy and is getting a pharyngoplasty. Mm -hmm. Patient B's child has had the same problem after surgery at the same time in the same centre and they're getting a palate re-repair. And the parents are confused as to why their two children are having two different operations for what they perceive to be the same problem. Yeah. And that's where taking the parents around and showing them the video fluoroscopy and explaining what the issue is in their particular child is a huge benefit. Yeah, of course. And it gives us a better insight as to you know what you guys are doing or why you're doing it rather than just being told you're going to have this done we'll organize the paperwork it, it will make such a difference to parents to to feel involved and not feel in the dark about things because often medical situations you know we just go okay yes yeah don't actually know anything yeah, I think there's much greater and better buy-in from parents if they understand the logic of why what the decision making process has been and, and involve decision-making. We could do option A, we could do option B. These are the advantages of A and the, and the disadvantages. These are the advantages of B and the disadvantages. Yeah. What do you think will be best for your child? 
Well, it's funny you say that because I completely agree. And here's what my perspective is. And then you reach this joint uh, decision making kind of uh, conclusion and you've got a plan for that particular child that you've been involved in, the parents have been involved in, older children can be involved in, um, and, and the speech therapist can be involved in. And that just gives, um, I think that's the best way of going about it, if, if, it, if it is possible. Yeah, um, no, I, I totally, totally agree. Um, so let's say that, you know, child A has got to have, you know, whatever type of technique, what does palate lengthening involve? Because I don't, I don't know that I sort of specifically asked in the previous question. So when you create a palate from a cleft palate, you use whatever is there, correct? Correct. You don't actually graft anything in. Is no. palate lengthening different in that respect? Do you add anything in or are you literally just going to pull and grab whatever's there? So I, I think there's three things really to, to talk about with that. Number one, when you re-repair a palate, so you're going to open the scar back up, you're going to dissect the muscles back again. Okay. Often, often between the back of the hard palate and where the muscles live, mm -hmm. scar tissue will form. Okay. And scar tissue, as it matures, will contract and shrink it. So even if you've ever had a scar anywhere else on your body, so like you've had your appendix out or you've had uh, you know, a cut on, on your arm as a child falling out of a tree or something, mm -hmm. you'll notice that that scar shrivels and shortens and contracts over time. Yeah. That's just what the collagen in scar tissue does. So if you've got the muscles, a bit of scar tissue, and then the back of the hard palate, over time that scar can contract and pull the soft palate forward. Mm -hmm. So sometimes all you need to do is dissect that scar tissue away and then the muscle springs back again. And often what I show um, you know, junior surgeons or medical students in theatre is when I've dissected the muscles back and I haven't done anything apart from relieve the scar tissue, dissect it off the nasal layer of the palate, and I pick it up with the forceps and I say, this is where it sits now. Mm -hmm. And I bring it forward to where I made the incision. I'm saying this is where it was beforehand. And all I've done is dissect it. You can see that the palate has lengthened just by doing that. Oh, interesting. So what, what I do is I make a straight line incision, open up the palate, dissect the scar tissue and the muscles back again mm -hmm. and then that by itself will involve a lengthening of the the palate in itself okay i then try and assess whether or not i think that's sufficient mm -hmm. and if it isn't then there's other things you can do you can perform a z plasty to the oral mucosal layer that's the layer of the palate that you see when you look inside the roof of your own mouth mm -hmm. and a z plasty is just like a zorro shaped incision similar to what harry potter had on his forehead <laughs> And what you do is the two triangular flaps, you just move them from position A to position B. Uh -huh. And that movement, depending on the angle of the flaps, this is all horrible geometry from A level. <laughs> depending on the angle of the flaps, when you transpose them, you will get lengthening of that straight line scar by anything up to 50, 60, 75%. Right. So um, that is one way of lengthening it. Mm -hmm. um, or you can bring extra tissue in. And some parents might be familiar with the term um, buckle flap. Mm -hmm. And that is a flap of tissue from the inside of the cheek, uh, which is pedicled, which means you take a bit of muscle, the blood supply with it, and you inset that into the palate. So when you lengthen the palate, it leaves a gap and you lay the piece of tissue from the inside of the cheek in there mm -hmm. uh, and stitch it all in. And you can do one from either side and make a sandwich where one becomes the nasal air and the other becomes the oral air. Loads of different things you can do. That's amazing. Like you just, you know, you hear palate lengthening and your mind just kind of goes, oh God, you're literally going to grab whatever's there and, and pull it back. That is literally how I envisage it. You just don't realise 
how many different techniques there are and you know that you do literally change you know change it up per patient and work out what's best for them as a result not generally this is what we do and hopefully your outcome will be good yeah templates don't work no. um you know saying that for for every patient i do x y or z uh you know is is wrong um you know it should be more tailored it should be more bespoke depending on the dimensions of each individual uh, cleft as, as you come across it yeah you've got principles and techniques and it's just a case of looking at what the problem is in front of you and figuring out which tool in the toolbox to take out to deal with it otherwise if you if all you have is a hammer everything becomes a nail that's yeah that's a very good way of explaining it for sure um so is palate lengthening the most common revision that you would do um, so palate re-repair plus or minus lengthening is probably the first step for anyone who's had a palate involved cleft mm -hmm. who has velopharyngeal dysfunction or insufficiency. And what that means is that the, the, the person is unable to achieve closure. They're unable to seal their nasal cavity off by lifting their palate up and, and touching the back wall of the throat. Mm -hmm. And that means that food can come down their nose or, or more commonly air when they're speaking. Yeah. And, uh, that problem, the, the very first step I would recommend would be palate re-repair plus or minus lengthening. Okay. Unless there's a, uh, you know, there's a patient with 22Q mm. uh, and the hypopharynx is ridiculously deep, then I know that even a, a lengthening procedure, if I took both buccal, buccal flaps and inset them into the palate, it is never going to achieve the length that it needs to seal that off. The other thing is that the geometry of the palate uh, and the levator muscles within the palate forms a sling. Mm -hmm. Now, did you have a, you, you've got a small holding, don't you? Yes. Does Will have a swing from a tree? <laughs> yes. Right, exactly. So if uh, you imagine the two ropes holding that seat of the swing, right? They're the levator muscles. Okay. And the seat that Will sits on is the soft palate. Okay. Now, if the swing is vertically up and down, mm -hmm. when those muscles contract, the seat just goes higher up in a vertical plane straight towards the branch. Yeah. Right? If the seat is slightly forward and the muscles contract, it brings the seat backwards and upwards and, and lifts the soft palate back towards the back wall of the throat as though it's going to seal it off. Yeah. If you move the seat of the swing behind the tree trunk and it contracts, it's going to lift that soft palate forwards away from the back wall of the throat. So it's going to open the space up even more. Yeah. So you can lengthen the palate to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. So in some children like those with 22Q, although they've got a really deep hypopharynx, you can never lengthen the palate the whole way back to meet that because you're putting the seat of the swing behind the tree trunk so that when it contracts those ropes are shortening and they're pulling the palate forwards instead of back yeah. so that that in that situation you may not want to lengthen the palate if it's at, if it's long enough and if you think that the swing is at vertical you mm. can't go past vertical so then you have to think about pharyngoplasty but all of that is detectable at the time of the video fluoroscopy so not everyone is going to be suitable for a lengthening procedure Okay. But it's, it's the most common first step, I would say, for, for most cleft surgeons in someone who's got a palate involved cleft. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the further you get in a journey, you know, like with Will, let's say, you know, the next thing I think is, OK, so he's probably going to need palate lengthening. 
I don't know that. I think it's just because it's like the common sort of phrase that you then hear around his age and this child's having that done and that child's having that done. So, you know, I think it's important that parents know that it's not just, okay, so you're of this age, so you're probably going to have this done. There is like, you know, step by step, you know, you work it out. There is ways and methods that you check to make sure that this is the most appropriate route as well. So um, I do think that that's important to note as well. It's totally, totally fine for parents to, you know, chat to other parents on social media platforms and groups, whether it's, you know, Clapper, whether it's Don't Get Lippy, whether it's Facebook groups or whatever, um, and figure out, well, I think he's probably going to end up having a palate lengthening procedure and then come into me. And if I say, right, I want to do an orthopedia pharyngoplasty to challenge me and go, okay, why don't you want to do a palate lengthening procedure? And I'll explain quite clearly the rationale behind why I don't think it would be of benefit to their child. Yeah, for sure. Um, what we don't want to do is put children through surgery when before you, while you're waiting for them to go asleep, you're saying in, in your head, this, this operation is going to help this child at all. Mm. I mean, no, no surgeon should ever do that and no surgeon would ever want to do that. No. So um, that's why protocols are good there as guidelines, but on a bespoke tailored individual patient um, pathway or patient management plan, mm. you've got to seek out what the individual problem is, why, why you think operation X won't work, but operation Y will, and, and clearly communicate that to the family. Because if the family don't know why you're not doing a palate lengthening procedure when they're bringing their child into the anesthetic room for an orthopedia pharyngoplasty, as a surgeon, that means I failed. Yeah. Do you know what the rates are of having those revisions done? Um, so... Again, this is you could you could break this down for each individual cleft type. Sorry. And, you know, we could, we could talk statistics for for the rest of the afternoon, and uh, everyone would be bored to tears. But broadly speaking, let's talk in really broad brushstrokes. Yeah. Um, if your child has palate-involved cleft and they have an operation, they've about an eighty to eighty-five percent chance of developing normal speech without the need for further surgery after that. Right. Um, if they do need to have further surgery, usually that first revision um, will address 80% of that 15 to 20%. So you're left with a really small cohort of patients then who are going to go on to need further revisional surgery, such as an orthopedia pharyngoplasty, etc. If you have it or, or other forms of pharyngoplasty, I say orthopedia because it's, it's one that I find to be very effective. Okay. But there are other forms of pharyngoplasty uh, available. So it's not the only form I do. There are other forms of pharyngoplasty I do, particularly if um, the gap is really small, really midline, um, and I don't want to, you know, take a sledgehammer to kill an ant kind of thing. If I'm just looking for a small tweak, I won't do orthopedia. If I want to really block up, I think about orthopedia. Um, and they're just different techniques. But... Um, for the people who do go on to have pharyngoplasty, mm -hmm. even those that are still left with a persistent problem, there is still the potential to revise or adjust that pharyngoplasty. Okay. And even if you've done a revision or an adjustment and there's still a problem, there are other non-surgical things that people can think about. Okay. If, we get, if we get people uh, coming who've got a problem with their speech resonance, too much air is escaping out their nose, or they've got turbulence, or they've got significant emission, nasal emission when they talk, um, and they don't want to consider surgery, there are other things that are available and that we're trialing, such as nasal valves, for example. Now, people may not want to wear nasal valves all the time, walking around the house and, and uh, talking to their friends in the coffee shop. But if you have a job in a call center, for example, 
you might find that putting your nasal valves in just makes your voice that much clearer and more projected. Uh, or if you're giving a lecture in a university or, uh, you know, if you want to be able to shout at children in the classroom, uh, then you may find that the nasal valves help. So there are certain situations where non-surgical techniques can help people with a particular problem at certain times if they didn't want to think or consider surgery. So definitely talk to your cleft centre about that. If you are, um, if you have been bothered by a, an element of your speech, because cleft care is constantly evolving and the, the nasal balance is just one thing that we're trying that wasn't there three years ago, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think, you know, even those statistics, you know, let's say it's uh, somebody who's pregnant is watching this at the moment. So even though that the initial surgery, up to 85% of people have a success rate and will, won't need any further surgery, that in itself is fantastic. And second, you know, surgery, you're, you're still looking into those 80s and um, 80 percentages, if that is even the right way of saying it, but you know what I mean? You know, yeah. that's, those are still fantastic um, statistics. So I think it's, again, another good thing that people know that the success rate of these surgeries are really, really high. So I think that's great. Right. And it's, it's getting better all the time. As cleft centres, we are constantly challenging ourselves to get better and to get better and to get better. Yeah. And, um, you know, as I say, we are heavily, heavily audited. Yeah. And every cleft centre, then their speech results are published uh, in a report on an annual basis. And if anyone falls below the threshold of an acceptable uh, result, then people come knocking on the door and say, well, Tom, what, what's been going on? So, you know, there is, there is nowhere to hide in cleft care in the UK. Uh, it, it, if your results are not up to par, then then action is taken, you know, so which is a really good thing, yes. um, because at the end of the day, the people who benefit the most and, and who deserve to benefit the most are the patients for whom the service is treating. So it's it's really, really, really good. Um, the no, way that it's heavily audited, like one of the most heavily audited departments. That's oh. just me throwing in a side question here. I think cleft, I think cleft surgery is is the most heavily audited. Uh, in terms of outcome because there's not a huge there's such there's such black and white uh in terms of the speech outcomes for example and and facial growth outcomes and dental health outcomes and psychological outcomes uh, that it's all standardized in terms of assessment so you can it, it's easy to translate uh outcomes into numbers and data which uh can then be measured and compared um so it it it's wrong to say that each individual can be reduced to numbers and data, but when it comes to assessing the performance of a cleft service, yeah. um, then you know it's impossible for one cleft unit to go rogue, for example, and start yeah. doing something that they just made up and producing rubbish results without it going unchecked. So yeah. uh, every unit in the UK is is constantly constantly under surveillance. We're in good hands, and I know that obviously the the cleft. Um, departments if you want to call them that or cleft teams you're you know you're under like centers of excellence aren't you there's only a handful a couple of handfuls of um centers that actually do cleft care in in the uk um yeah so that that came from the late 80s early 90s there was the clinical standards advisory group who really looked at cleft care in the uk and thought that uh, it was pretty rubbish in absolutely. terms of the outcomes were and they said well what can we do to improve this and one of the things that um, came from that was that cleft care was centred into designated units where people did it um, very regularly and were properly trained and had the appropriate resources. So all of that um, has, has kind of brought about significant improvements in, yeah. uh, in cleft care. If you think about alveolar bone grafting, which we'll probably do a video on some stage, 
yeah. by valvular bone grafting at the time of, of the, the CSAG review, the, the percentage success rate was 58%. So, you know, little over half 50-50 chance that your bone graft operation would work and be successful back in the 80s. Um, and now here we are 40 years later, and uh, I know the data from Glasgow because I was up there, you're talking between 95 and 98% success rate. So it's it's massively, massively improved. And you know, even on a national basis, the average is between 85 and 90%. So that's that's a huge turnaround. So those kind of changes brought about a huge improvement in cleft care. And the people who've benefited the most have been the patients. Yeah, absolutely. And and having been a bit or I am a patient and, and Will's a patient, you know, obviously we to know that we're in those sort of types of care, you know, where you're audited, you're constantly looking and reviewing, and it's all for the future patient's benefit. I think it's amazing. And um, so I guess to wrap up the, um, because I could just keep talking and asking questions, and um, I guess to kind of wrap up, I guess one thing that I'd like to talk about is, um, obviously off the back of COVID is that it seems that a lot of surgery um, dates seem to be getting later and later and and obviously nobody's in control of that and it was all unforeseen and um, are there any things that you would sort of say um, off the back of that or am I interpreting it wrong I'm not sure. No there's there's certainly uh, a big problem in the NHS in terms of access to theatre and the main limiting factor for that is staff. Um, the, there are huge problems right the way across the UK and all cleft centres are experiencing or have experienced delays uh, in their treatment. We've yeah. been uh, really lucky in South Wales. Um, the the uh, amount of operating space that we got um, between say March 2020 and June 2020 was zero. We didn't operate at all. Okay. And from June 2020 till October, we had maybe one or two lists per month. So, you know, that's down from eight lists per month before COVID. So we were hugely affected and every other cleft centre in the UK will tell you the same story. Yeah. Um, there was no standardised approach to what to do uh, in that scenario. So every cleft service will recover slightly differently because they're governed by different commissioners. They're governed by, they might be in bigger hospitals where there's greater demand on their theatre capacity or staff or yeah. ward capacity. Um, and uh, so every, everywhere is, is doing their absolute utmost and best, but some centres will suffer more for longer than others. Yeah. And we've been really lucky in South Wales that we've never let any of our pallets go beyond 12 months for repair during the whole of COVID because we prioritise them um, and we continue to prioritise pallet involvement. And we're back on protocol now for all our children, for all operations. So we're really, really lucky in that regard. Um, other centres haven't been so fortunate and it's not for the want of trying of the individual clinicians within no, the teams. No, absolutely. This is, this is a problem on a much higher level um, and, and people who are in um, Wales are very fortunate that we're able to keep going as we were um, and prioritise kids but our adults are suffering at the minute because we haven't got any capacity for adults. So that's the challenge that myself and, and my CD are trying to or clinical director are trying to address at present. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in Scotland, there are issues. In Northern Ireland, there are issues. And in England, there's there's plenty of issues. The one advantage is if you're born in England is that you can travel anywhere for your care. Whereas in Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales, you've you're, you've got your own healthcare commissioning service and there's only one centre in each of those three devolved nations. So in England, if you're born in London or, or in Newcastle, 
you can travel anywhere in the UK according to the NHS constitution to access your care. Okay. Now, with all the centres struggling, it, there may not be any one centre that's you know hugely better off than another. So, um, and maybe the distances to travel are, are just too onerous. But that's always something that people can look into. Yeah. Um, but as CLEF centres, we're always trying to help each other out. Um, and uh, we'll continue to do that uh, until everything recovers. What does it mean for patients? Well, um, if you've got your palate repaired uh, after 12 months, the speech outcomes are not as good. Okay. Um, that's been shown by the quality dashboard and um, by the Crane database where all the, the uh, lip and palate data for unilateral patients goes to try and, and digest to see how we can make things better. So we know that operating on pallets after 12 or 13 months of age is, is a bad idea, and we do our best to try and get them done before that. Um, what does it mean? What, why is it a bad idea? What, are the, what does that look like? Well, your child would be at increased risk of needing further additional surgery, your increased risk of needing more intensive speech and language therapy, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes that can be up to an additional 500 hours of speech therapy. So it's, it's not an insignificant uh, consequence of delay. And what we don't want to do is medicalize, um, you know, an, an increased period of a child's childhood when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. So, uh, you know, previously people would have been brought back in on an annual basis or every six months for review just because you had a cleft. And now we don't do that. We bring people back at all the time points and leave ourselves open that patients can contact us if or parents can if they think that there's a problem. But otherwise, we, we try to back off and not be not label that child's childhood as, you know, one that was littered with loads of unnecessary medical appointments. Um, so it's, it's a difficult time. I know there's a lot of parents who are, are you know, uh, concerned. Our unit has received phone calls from people from outside of, of Wales. Um, and, and I can appreciate that the delays are causing significant stress. Um, the, the cleft development group, meet regularly which is the, cl the clinical directors of all the cleft centers around the uk mm -hmm. uh, to see if if anything can be done um we've worked really closely with our commissioners in wales who've been phenomenal at, at trying to get us extra resource and give us what we need to keep going and keep the results um to be as good as they possibly can for the children in wales and i'm sure the english commissioners are going to do the same in england um, and scotland and northern ireland so um that doesn't really alleviate uh, the issue or the problems right now. I mean, it, it wasn't always this good. I remember back in in April and May and June of 2020 when we didn't have a recovery plan and I was looking at, you know, I, I started with a pen and a piece of paper trying to extrapolate how many babies were going to be born without a plan and, and how many kids were we going to have waiting for surgery and as a single surgeon, how many lists would that take for me to catch up and what would the backlog be like and you know, I started to get very scared and worried very early and, and flagged it pretty quickly. And, you know, we we came up with a list of solutions. I, I've always been taught that never give people a list of problems, give them a list of problems with solutions and let them choose the solution. So, you know, you, you've got to speed things up as much as possible. So we looked at all the different solutions and this will make you laugh, Jen, right? But um, at one point I was so concerned and worried for the cleft patients in South Wales that uh, we look to go to get, you know, you, your solution says, well, well, let's just look and get more capacity locally. We knew that wasn't an option. They said, well, what about other hospitals in South Wales? They had their own issues. That wasn't a, a possibility. We said, well, what about the private hospitals in South Wales? But a lot of the private hospitals 
won't let you into do cases, even if the NHS buys their operating space because they don't want uh, small infants uh, with airway surgery. It's a high risk. Uh, they deem to be a high risk if you don't have pediatrics on site, you don't have a pediatric high dependency unit, etc. So none of those units would take us. We went to the rest of the CLEF units in the UK um, and they were all in similar problems. Yeah. We looked at private hospitals all around the UK, so Great Ormond Street Private in London, looked yeah. at Portland, they weren't uh, able to help us solve the problem. So uh, we looked abroad and um, we, we found hospitals uh, or a hospital in another part of the world that had you know pediatric intensive care and pediatric cleft trained anaesthetists and, and contemplated or put it in a document as a potential solution wow. um, to take children abroad for surgery. Um, and, and that was, you know, the list and the menu of choices. So that's the extent that the cleft services are going to, to try and find solutions for their, their patients. It's just, yeah. it's very, very difficult at the minute when you've got surgeons, but no theater staff. Um, or you've got theatre staff, and um, but a massive backlog, so the theatre space is having to be divided amongst every competing specialty, of which cleft is just one. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really tricky. I, but I think, again, it's important that, you know, people that are watching this know that you guys aren't just sitting back and going, it's only a cleft. Like, you guys are pushing for the best as well. And, and like I say, it was all unforeseen. And, you know, although it's stressful for both parties, I think it's, you know, it's good for parents to know that they can call their cleft team and call their cleft nurse and express their concerns and, you know, voice, you know, what questions that they may have for you guys to be able to answer and for you guys to know what's going on from a parent's perspective as well. So I think, you know, if, if you guys are open to that is for parents to contact their teams and just sort of talk to them really yeah no absolutely and particularly um you know parents in england who who might be like right well let's phone around all the other centers and see if we could get our child uh, seen uh, more quickly you've got to balance everything up about uh you know the distance you may have to travel Will your own cleft team be available to look after that child after surgery? Your local cleft team, if there's a problem, or do you have to travel all the way back to the original center? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's loads of things to weigh up and try and decide. Um, so it, it's not an easy, straightforward decision for families to make. And, you know, at the end of the day, all parents want is the best for their children. And, and there's no surgeon um, would ever stand in the way of that. I mean, certainly when we were going cap in hand to the other centres in the UK when we thought we couldn't provide care in Wales for a long period of time. The last thing any surgeon wants to see is their children heading off to be operated on by someone else when it's your job to deliver that care. Um, but absolutely, if, if, if I couldn't deliver the care and a colleague in Newcastle or Essex or uh, Scotland could have, you know, I would have sent that child with the best wish in the world. Um, so, you know, we just have to see what um, each individual cleft centre can come up with in terms of solutions uh, with the help of their commissioning team. Um, and if, if there is a massive problem, then I'm sure other, ser other services will, will offer help wherever they possibly can to try and get on top of things. Yeah, so I think as a sort of final note, it would be to, to contact your cleft team if you have any concerns or, you know, you want to talk to somebody, don't just wait it out and, you know, do voice your opinions. Um, know that there are options to travel should you be able to, and obviously 
considering all those other factors as well. Um, and if you feel that you're getting to that point of beyond 12 months is to, again, contact your cleft team and just sort of say, you know, what are my options? Because we want the best for our children, as do you guys. You guys want the best for your patients and you're going to help us in, you know, whichever term that might be. I think parents need to realise that um, if they're worried and they're concerned and they're stressed, that they should complain. Yeah. Um, because the automatic, I think there's a great relationship builds up between the cleft teams and the parents, and mm -hmm. it's a lifelong relationship. And I think some parents might be reluctant to complain because they feel that they're complaining against the team who are looking after their child. And I would, I would just kind of like to reassure parents that we would never take those complaints personally. You're complaining over the lack of ability to, to access timely care and surgical intervention, which the cleft team also want to deliver. So sometimes the complaints that come in have to go through a process that go up to the executive board. It's not something that is just dealt with at the level of the cleft team. So sometimes complaints can be a huge help to that cleft team in getting access to the resources that they need yeah. because it highlights, it's another voice highlighting to the parents, uh, to the executives of the hospital or the commissioners that this is not satisfactory, that my child is coming to harm and I hold you accountable and find out what the response is. And there is an escalation policy if their parents are not happy with that response. And I am pretty certain we wouldn't, as, as the, the Welch Clef team, we were certainly not um, offended or uh, opposed to any parent putting a complaint in. It actually helped us in the long term. Which is interesting. And I think, you know, unless, you know, those people higher up are made aware that, you know, people, on the ground are having issues or you know the parents are having issues or the child is suffering for that um without complaints they don't know so yeah i think it's an, again another important note to say that you know complaints as as horrible as a term as it is it's it's sometimes worth doing so um anything else you want to talk about in regards to palates or palate surgery we haven't mentioned submucous cleft palate okay. um, and i think that's important to talk about okay um, because some children, particularly older children, after they go to school, uh, teachers may kind of say, is, is Johnny's speech okay? Mm -hmm. uh, have, have they seen a speech therapist? And if you've been in Johnny's company since the day whenever he was born, and all of a sudden someone says to you, is his speech okay? Well, of course it's fine, because you haven't noticed anything different. It's been like that all the time. Yeah. Um, sometimes it takes that external um opinion of someone meeting your child for the first time to go their speech is not quite right okay. and maybe it's something that you've always noticed but just kind of buried because you didn't want to admit there was something wrong uh, or maybe uh you never noticed because you've just been around them and they've been your only child and you never thought anything was any different yeah but sometimes um there are children who uh when you talk to families there's been an awful lot of nasal regurgitation even from the time as a baby milk came down their nose but you know they passed the, the baby check the postnatal baby check everyone had a look in the palate was intact yeah. um and you were just told to crack on with it and they may have been slow to gain weight and the healthcare visitor might have been coming frequently and then uh, as they've gotten a little bit older you've noticed they've got an awful lot of ear infections and glue ear and they're having grommets put in they're on their third set of grommets um always down getting antibiotics from the gp because of ear infections um, or then, uh, you know, you go to reception class and the teacher picks up that there's a problem and the speech and language therapist who visits the school sees them and diagnoses them with a problem and asks if it's okay for them to refer on to the cleft team. Mm -hmm. And that can be a huge surprise for the parents of some four-year-olds. 
Yeah. Um, but there is a condition called submucous cleft palate. And what that means is that um, you imagine the palate, as we've spoken about before, is like a sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got two layers of bread, they're mucosa. You've got the oral mucosa, which is the slice of bread you see when you look in the mouth. And if you were to put a camera through the nose and look down, you see the other slice of bread on the other side. Yep. And the meat in the sandwich or the muscles um, are what moves the palate and make it work. Yeah. So in a submucous cleft palate, the, the slices of bread are all intact, but the meat's in the wrong place. Um, and that means that the palate doesn't work very effectively. Okay. And there are some subtle signs that we can look for to see whether or not uh, that's likely to be the case. So you can get a bifid uvula. So the bit that dangles down the back of the throat in the midline, mm -hmm. that can sometimes be split in two. So okay. it looks like the clangor of a bell, but if you've got two clangors instead of one, or your clangor looks like a peach with a little cleft in it, yeah. that can be a sign right okay. the other sign is that when you run your finger start right behind the teeth and run it backwards when you get to the junction between the hard palate where there's bone mm -hmm. and the soft palate where you start to gag if you can feel or appreciate a little v-shaped notch there mm -hmm. that can be a sign and then sometimes it can be so obvious that when you look in at the back of the palate the bit that goes right to the back you can sometimes see a really faint blue line going down the in mid middle and yeah. you can appear like you've got two little pillows or bulges on either side and nothing crossing the midline and those little signs will lead us to conclude that there may be a submucous cleft palate okay um, often we would send the child then for specialist speech and language therapy assessment mm -hmm. video fluoroscopy exam and often on the video fluoroscopy exam you would see that the lift isn't very efficient and it is quite anterior okay and how so do you that trial is a submucous cleft palate. And what we do is we open up the oral layer of the palate. We mm -hmm. find the muscle, dissect it to the back, uh, and then uh, stitch the oral layer back closed again. Um, so that is another subtle form of cleft palate where you don't see the gap or the hole, but the muscles are orientated in the wrong place so that when they contract, they don't lift the palate efficiently at all. And so but, much of all of that impacts on speech. So I guess speech is a massive indicator for, for any of these issues. Exactly. So speech is, is the one thing that will lead speech and language therapists to be suspicious that it is there. Yep. Uh, often you don't see the signs because how many times, if you had a child who wasn't born with a cleft or a problem in their mouth, how many times are you going to go in looking at the back of your child's throat? Exactly. Very, very rarely, unless they're, you know, they've got a fever and you're looking if their tonsils are, are, yeah. are the source. But otherwise you don't really. Um, so it's just one of those other subtle um, types of cleft that yeah. affects the palate. Um, and sometimes you can get even an occult submucous cleft palate. And an occult submucous cleft palate is when you've got the muscles in the wrong place, but you don't have any of the signs pointing to it. So you've got no cleft or no um, groove on your uvula, uh, on your clanger. You've got no line going up the middle of the uh, palate and you've got no notch. So, you know, they are very rare and few and far between, but I'm sure there will be some people who subscribe to your site who who have got children who've had submucous cleft palate. Okay. Um, and I guess, as like because I want to end on a high note, because obviously the last part of that conversation was quite serious. And um, <laughs> I don't think people realise that those with a cleft palate aren't born with a uvula, correct? Well, you do have all the bits of the uvula, but they're just on, on opposite sides. They're like, they're like they fell out and, and just kind of went to other sides of the room. And, and don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, because, you know, I think, especially doing Don't Get Lippy, when I've said to people, you know, I don't have the dangling thing in the back of my throat, people go, what? 
you know, everybody has one of those. And and actually not everybody does, or some people have two. So there you yeah. go. And and when we when we repair a pallet, we try and stitch it together and, and make it look as neat as, as possible. Yeah. Like it has no real function that you feel it. Um, but you know, often mine come out looking like a little bunch of grapes. Um so you know, we, we do our best to make it look as anatomically uniform as possible, but um, you know, that's the least least of our worries at that stage. <laughs> well, if you're in South Wales, you're gonna be in good hands, put it that way. Um I think we'll leave it there for this video. Um, thank you again for joining me and um yeah, hopefully we can get another video done as well at some point. All right, cheers, Jen. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.